Hello and welcome to the Hunt High Carvers podcast with your hosts, Jason Hirsch and Joel Rayther, where we bring you everything from training tips to nutrition, as well as industry leaders and those from the field to better enhance your hunting experience. And now, without further ado, welcome our hosts, Jason and Joel. The word recording. Hello and welcome to the H3O podcast. I am Joel Rather here with Jason Hirsch. And today we have someone who is, I guess, a blast from the past for me. Uh, believe it or not, went to high school. Maybe been even that long since maybe we've talked or seen each other potentially. But um, have a, a, a someone that I'm pretty excited to talk to who's very highly involved in, in the industry. Uh, first and foremost is a veteran, um, which is, is extremely uh, important and something that we value very highly. He uh, is former uh, Marine Corps scout sniper, which is something that should be very highly regarded and very impressive to see, to say the least. So we thank you for that at the very start. Um, he's worked as a security contractor and currently is the marketing director for Hornady. Um, so we're pretty pleased and excited to welcome Neil Davies. Neil, how are you? Good. Thanks, Joel. Jason, thanks for having me on here. Yeah, yeah uh, it's probably been a long time, Joel, but uh, <laughs> we we played football together for probably about a year or something like that. And yeah. yeah, probably took a few beatings. Now, I would, I would uh, before we begin, I'm under the understanding that once a Marine, always Marine. You're never a sure. former Marine. Is that true? Always a Marine. That's yeah, it's true. true. Yeah, so. Fair enough. Um, but uh, interestingly, you know, I think that at, you know, your background, obviously coming from a military perspective, uh, talk a little bit about your, you know, progression into, you know, where you are today. Obviously they fit very well, uh, based on, you know, what you did in the military, but now, you know, what you do on a day-to-day basis. Yeah. You know, I, I served in the Marine Corps, like we've, we've talked about, and then I, I decided that it was time to come home and to raise our kids. And we decided we want to move back to Nebraska to do it. And there was a couple places that I'd looked at wanting to work, uh, for, um, Hornady was definitely one of them. And, um, you know, I sent them my resume kind of blindly, didn't really know what I was qualified for at the time. Um, I had a certain amount of experience pulling triggers and, uh, things like that. But, you know, they had, if, if Margaret Hornady, who's Steve Hornady's uh, sister would have opened my resume when she first received it, she'd have probably said, Hey, thanks for applying, but no thanks. But <laughs> luck would have it. It sat on her desk for about three months. And uh, by the time she got to it, they did have a position open in the marketing department. And I uh, came in and did an interview and got a job that I probably wasn't qualified for at the time. There's nothing in my past that uh, with any kind of marketing training, but I've been a, an enthusiast of the hunting side since, you know, way back, you know, when I was a young guy and then obviously made my living shooting or with a rifle in my hand since I was 18 and joined the military. So it kind of fit. Um, and then from there, you know, the company has grown exponentially and uh, my role has changed with time and I've been uh, able to see some of the, the amazing growth that the company and the industry has been able to participate in over the years. Yeah, that's, I mean, th- that's, pretty pretty awesome i mean i think that a lot of us would uh love to have that trajectory where it it just you know things kind of fell in place and here you are now it's been what i think you've been there i think when i looked at like 16 years is that correct yeah Mm -hmm. 16 years so obviously uh must not be that bad a place to be if uh pretty good for not being qualified (laughs) yeah yeah i know they say uh, say fake it till you make it right yeah well they haven't they haven't they haven't caught on to me yet 
<laughs> hey, the, every every day. Make sure they're not watching this podcast. Ed. <laughs> so um, I don't want to let the cat out of the bag. Yeah, well, I, I know probably the the easiest as far as a, a follow up to that is the current state of affairs and looking at things, and it's been a challenge. I know I've watched things from you guys as far as social media and stuff and the ammo, right, and and how much it has been really tapped into and difficult for you guys i know have been scrambling like crazy like talk about how you know you're from a maybe from both sides of it you know from being a, an outdoorsman and a hunter as to you know work what you do as far as work goes like what your your kind of perception of the the ammo shortage and those types of things looks like and what you guys are doing to to keep up i guess yeah, you know, I mean, I'm still an enthusiast myself. So I, I'm, I participate, I shoot, I hunt, I do all these things. And so part of my job as the marketing director for Hornady is to kind of be the advocate for the consumer within our company. And right now, unfortunately, demand is outstripping capacity uh, across the board. Our company, every company that's out there that's making ammunition or components or reloading tools, um, so in that regard, it's kind of unfortunate because people can't find uh, what they want when they want it. Now, that's always going to be a problem regardless of the, uh, the, the situation in America or the world. There's always going to be something that maybe wasn't made lately that you didn't get, you know, and you, or, or maybe it was made in limited quantities. But right now, obviously, I'm, I assume you and your listeners or, or viewers are aware People are buying everything they possibly can. Um, there's a lot of people that are concerned and think that there's some kind of um, conspiracy or something. I can assure you there's there's absolutely no conspiracy. Um, <laughs> every every bit of ammunition that we make is going out to, you know, to our distributors and to our big box uh, customers and to our buying group members. That's then going directly to retail. We do have some law enforcement and military contracts, but they are not anything compared to what we do on the commercial market. Um, but to put it in perspective, I mean, everybody just look at your own buying habits. You know, everybody can understand how we ran out of toilet paper for a while. Well, this exactly. is much the same. I mean, people weren't going to the bathroom more than they did before, but when they saw <laughs> toilet paper, they freaked out and bought as much as they could. Well, that's what's going on now. Um, so a, a guy, a gal, whatever is going to the store and they're buying, instead of buying that three boxes or five boxes that they normally would have bought, now they're buying a case, two cases, yeah. whatever the heck they can get, uh, they're buying that. Um, the other thing is you know, we had a guy from South Carolina or somewhere that has a real late deer season, and he was upset because he couldn't get 270 Winchester ammo. Well, there's trickle down, and, and that's what's happened. So the same people that decided they needed to get a whole bunch of 9 or 223 or what have you, well, then they also own a 270 or a 30-06 or a 300 Win Mag, and they bought a whole bunch of that, too, and it just kind of snowballs from there. Um, so there's plenty of ammo being made, and if you can't find some, your neighbor probably has a case or two that they just bought, and <laughs> that, that's what it's happening. Um, I'm you know, some of the interesting. we know a guy. <laughs> yeah, exactly. But, I mean, the statistics are in 2020 according to nssf we added eight i think it's 8.4 million first-time gun owners that's a huge number yeah i think i think the the number that's thrown around is about uh 45 percent of american households are, are gun owners let's say so somewhere around 100 million maybe uh, you know so how many of those people are active i guess we don't know but that's a lot of people that own firearms 
And if a, a majority of them are out buying ammunition, now you can kind of make sense of why it's so hard to find something. Yeah, I, I think I heard the, the number was like 8 billion rounds behind schedule for the ammo manufacturers. They're just trying to catch up to demand. Yeah, it wouldn't surprise me. I mean, we are we are extremely back ordered right now. And some of the other misnomers that people have is they think that us and those like us have swapped over or switched over to making only two G three and nine millimeter or something like that. That's not true. So th- when you're making bullets, bullets are um, you have they're it takes length to make weight. So if you want a bullet that's a seven millimeter, that's 139 grains, and a seven millimeter that is you know. Um, 160 grains, well, it just gets longer, right? So seven millimeter, et cetera. But so certain bullets are certain lengths, right? So certain presses have a stroke that makes that bullet versus another bullet. Same with ammo. So we have presses that make certain lengths of bullets and we have other presses that make certain lengths of ammo. So those those machines make that ammo. So no, not everything is being switched over to make nine millimeter or two, two, three. We're making a bit of everything, but there are certainly some products that are in higher demand than others. Uh, basically, that's 223, anything that goes in any kind of AR platform uh, on up to 308, and then every kind of personal protection handgun ammo. But it's also to stuff like 3030 and 270, obviously. Right. Yeah, it, it's, uh, it is interesting. It's funny because I had uh, someone that I knew recently, and uh, his father was someone who just hoarded ammo and his father passed away and he himself is not not really a hunter and and he i think he has you know maybe like one firearm in his house and he's like hey do you do you you want this ammo and i'm like Uh, sure and he comes over and all of a sudden he had literally eight military cans full of ammo of just like I don't even know. There's just everything and everything. everything. <clears throat> See, now the general rule of thumb is if there's a caliber of ammo that you were either given or mistakenly buy that you don't own a gun for, you have to go buy a gun for it. Is that? That's what happened to me. I got 45 by accident for Christmas one year, so I had to go out and buy a 1911 to shoot it. I mean, I can't just let good ammo sit around. I'm in deep trouble then. <laughs> <laughs> so... Um, Let's let's move on. I know one of the things that we were we were going to talk about that we, we had to ask. We figured it couldn't be a better spot to ask. It's uh, are, you, are you pulling the card out right now? I'm going to do it right oh, away. Yeah. We're going to get this on on the table. It's this. it's like admitting to like saying that you like Nickelback, and I think that's uh, it's a the, fair it's a fair comparison. The, the showing, uh, showing your age, Joel. Showing yeah, your age, right? <laughs> I know the uh, the the argument about the six point five. Let's 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 do it. I want to know your opinion. On uh, what, it's what a you... very hotly contested topic yeah. on the forums, uh, especially for uh, like I hunt Colorado. I'm sure you've um, had the conversation. Anytime somebody brings up six five, there's a whole two or three days worth of conversation that goes back and forth. Lovers and haters. So yes, go. <laughs> you want to know where I stand on it? Is that what you're asking? Yeah, like what, what's what's your thoughts? I know like people, especially like for us, like we we talk about it for. A I lot shoot three oh eight my rifle. Yeah, so. a lot of guys talk about it, for, especially for elk and whatever. And you you got your guys are like, no, you're crazy. Like, what are you thinking? And other guys are like, oh, who are the who are who? The majority of the people that say that it's no good for elk. Where where do they come from? Like what 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 region of the country? Or what argument are they? Are yeah, they what part out? of the country? Uh, I don't know. This is the I hunt Colorado 
yeah. Facebook page. Yeah. So and it, the people from all over the place. I'm assuming predominantly Colorado based, but a lot of their you know uh, grievances with the with the caliber is that it's too small, um, and that it's not. It's it's basically that's it. It's too small. Doesn't carry enough punching power to take down such a large animal like an elk. Well, there's probably thousands upon thousands of dead elk that would disagree with that. (laughs) (laughs) I mean, you know, this is, this is a fun conversation because I mean, that's what campfire talks built around is, you know, talking about cartridges and talking about which one is better for this or that or the other thing. And, you know, I'm I'm pretty close to the six, five Creedmoor. I I was here when we, when we started that um, whole project. So, it's a, it's a cool story, and um, as we coined it, it's the overnight success that took 10 years, basically. Right, yeah. So we were at uh, Camp Perry. It was uh, Dennis DeMille, who was the general manager of Creedmoor Sports at the time, Dave Emery, who was our ballistician, and uh, Joe Thielen, who was a project engineer at the time. He's now our assistant director of engineering, and uh, myself. So we were there at this condo. I think uh, maybe Greg Kantorovich was there from Creedmoor as well. So we just, you know, everybody's kind of picking Dennis's brain. Dennis is a world champion shooter. I think he's won the high, the NRA matches, definitely won the CMP a few times. He's in the Marine Corps shooting team. And at this point he'd retired and he was a civilian. So we're picking his brain to find out, you know, what are the attributes of an ideal across the course cartridge? So in NRA or CMP high power competition, you shoot uh, from a variety of positions. It's pretty regimented shooting, standing, sitting or kneeling uh, and prone position from 200, 300 and 600 yard lines at big paper targets, right? I mean, you think about classic match shooting stuff, that's how you do it. So he kind of, you know, laid out some of the things that he thought would be great attributes in a, in a across the course match cartridge. And uh, so Joe and Dave uh, went back and kind of set about taking a look at, at producing something that would, that would uh, meet those requirements. We had a cartridge case that we'd refined recently for the 30TC and the 308 Marlin Express that then was uh, modified to become what would be the 6.5 Creedmoor. Uh, the name was an homage to Dennis's affiliation with Creedmoor Sports. And if you know anything about Creedmoor matches in, uh, I'm pretty sure, New York, you know, that's an old shooting uh, facility and it's just kind of a cool uh, name and homage. So, uh, we had to go down and convince Steve Hornady that we should do this cartridge. So Steve rarely says yes to anything on the first ask. That's just not, that's not normally how he goes. He wants you to convince him that, that, that you're passionate about it. So I spoke to Jason Hornady, his son and our vice president. And he said, yeah, that sounds good. You know, blah, blah, blah. Uh, but you need to go down there and ask dad. So I said, okay, shoot. Well, before I went down there, I knew we needed to have a, It'd be really good if we had a gun manufacturer that would chamber the thing. So I called my busty, uh, my buddy uh, D- uh, Dustin M. Holtz at um, DPMS, and you know, just briefly said, "Hey, you know, we're we're talking about this new cartridge. Would you have any interest in it?" He says, "Yeah, we'll chamber that." I was like, "All right, great." So now I got a gun guy that would chamber the thing. Went down and chatted with Steve about it, and uh, he never said yes, but he didn't say no. He said, "All right." So. We just went out. So before that, it was a black op, and that's a good way to get spanked around here is allocating resources to a black op. So uh, we set out. We we made this 6.5 Creedmoor, and that was in 2007, I believe, for the 2008 intro year. 
And then lo and behold, with time, that thing started to grow and grow and grow and grow and to become what it is today. So it is a top seller. Um, A lot of it's because it's just so flexible and versatile. You can shoot matches with it. You can shoot prey dogs if you want to. You can shoot coyotes for sure, deer. And yes, you can shoot elk with it. So there's your long history story. Uh, You got more than you bargained for on that one, I suppose. But for me personally, it's been a lot of fun to be a fly on the wall. Because like I said, I'm an enthusiast at heart. I mean, so 18-year-old me looks at, you know, old guy me and thinks, wow, that, you know, that was pretty cool to just see how that happened, you know, and to have been a fly on the wall while this thing was created. So that was cool. Um, But yeah, back to the elk hunting thing. You know, it's a personal preference. I, you know, every September I start getting Facebook messages from industry people asking me, hey, is the 6.5 Creedmoor good enough for an elk? And I always reply to them every day and twice on Sunday. Just look at your numbers, choose the right bullet, uh, make sure your your ranges are correct. Uh, you know, stay within the, the, the effective killing range of that cartridge. So if that's what you have, by all means, go for it. Just, you know, don't. Don't exceed your capabilities and don't exceed the cartridge's capabilities. I would presume that most people that are going to go elk hunting are going to get something that starts with, you know, 27 or 7 or 30 caliber kind of as a primary. But, you know, there's a lot of people all over the West that hunt elk with a 6.5 Creedmoor that don't get in chat rooms, don't watch podcasts or listen to podcasts that (laughs) kill a lot of elk with it, Uh, particularly kids. I mean, kids and you know, if that's the gun you got, that's a great one to use. Um, personally, I've never shot an elk with a 6.5 Creedmoor. I've shot one with a 6.5 PRC, um, but I have taken it and hunted stuff in Africa with it. I've seen it do a fantastic job on Kudu, which is pretty representative of what a what an elk would be size-wise. Um, I Wayne Benzoul, outdoor rider, killed an eland with it at like 400 yards or something like this. So that's a gigantic animal. It can be up to 2,000 pounds. So it's capable. Um, you just got to do the right thing with it. Shot placement at the end of the day, right? Doesn't, yeah. It doesn't really matter. Yeah. yeah. As long as you're taking a good ethical shot, you're going to take yeah. the target. Yeah. And I mean, I, you know, like we've all seen people that are shooting large magnums that don't shoot much. Um, maybe uh, they don't have a break on it and they're scared of it and they don't shoot well with it. Yeah. Or, you know, they put it in the wrong place and, you know, the animal takes a while before they find it. And yeah, if you shoot the thing well and you stay within the limits of its capabilities, it'll get it done. Choose the right bullet. Make sure you choose the right bullet. Um, For us, I'd be a real DX or a GMX would be what what we would recommend anyways. Nice. Well, there you have it. Yeah. I, I guess it's, the debate has been settled. It's over. Well, now I'm not. Don't take don't take my word for the Bible. But yeah, there's a lot. I mean, <laughs> yeah. yeah, if you've got it and that's what you want to go hunting with, by all means, go for it. It's it's legal in all states one. pretty much. And, you know, you'll be you'll be fine. Yeah, I need to go get a gun now. <laughs> well, that's that's always the case. There's always something. You're yeah, missing, right? I mean, they're fairly cheap to shoot, too. It's not like it's an expensive caliber or even expensive gun you know, to own a six, five is fairly unafford, you know, fairly, uh, economical rifle and caliber. So, so for you, especially knowing, you know, I would say the, the resources and probably, you know, what your gun cabinet looks like and, and the amount of different animals that you've taken all over the world, um, you know, which is, is pretty cool. I mean, watching some of the hunts that you've been on, I, I think I have a lot of, uh, 
envy and, <laughs> and all the, the cool places you've been able to hunt. And I'm like, yeah, I got it. I need to do that someday. That's, um, you know, very cool experiences. I'm sure that, you know, those are, those are lifelong memories, but how do you go about from your perspective? Like when you, you know, say, I know with your, uh, your chamois and, um, you know, some of the, other, like you, you mentioned, uh, South Africa and, and things like that, or Africa, um, like where, where's your decision-making go in terms of, you know, do you have a go-to where you're like, ah, this is my most versatile? Do you, I mean, how do you kind of like make those decisions based on... For a, for a cartridge or, or a bullet or what? Uh, for for either, I guess, you know, like what, where, where's your process start when you say, I'm going to go do this hunt and, you know, I'm going to determine what I'm going to use in terms of, you know, a sure. caliber or whatever, you know, how, how's, what's your decision-making process look like with that? Yeah. So typically, you know, I'm, I'm an industry guy. I do plenty of hunting on my own. I mean, I can frustrate my wife because I'll go on an industry event somewhere and I'll come back maybe and change clothes and then I go goose hunting for two days. So I'm, you know, on my own. So it's, it's just what I do. It's part of my life, I suppose. But um, so typically the way it works is we're affiliated with television shows and then obviously we do work with the editorial groups. So we'll take writers on events so they can cover our products. So when we do that... It's typically a new product that we've uh, got available that we want to have them go out and test. So we kind of build the event around that product. So, um, you know, we're not going to take people out with VMAX bullets to go shoot uh, deer, but we'll certainly go shoot prairie dogs. So some of that's pretty intuitive, obviously. Um, but yeah, we, you know, once you're looking at what you're going to shoot, like say you're going to South Africa or somewhere like that, where you might shoot different sizes of animals. I mean, a 300 wind mag will do pretty much everything over there, but it's it's certainly more than you need on a little steam buck or something like this. So somewhere, if you get to choose, you can pick a happy medium. And then again, like we were talking about 65 Creedmoor, just kind of make sure you stay within the 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 effective range of your of your combination that you're actually shooting with your cartridge and bullet. Um, so when we did the Precision Hunters and the ELDX bullets, we were testing bullets on that event. So we, we went to South Africa and we had a big uh, group of riders that went there and the goal was to test bullets. It, we were for sure hunting, but we it was really the first time we got to test the bullets at range and to see how it performs on a variety of animals. And those were prototype bullets. Um, but, you know, so we shot smaller animals at closer ranges and then we, and everybody shooting a 300 wind mag with a 200 grain ELDX then. And then uh, we also did some stuff. We were trying to shoot cull animals at long range to see how the bullets performed. So, yeah, I mean, if you're going to go shoot a Cape Buffalo, you want to shoot a DGX and or a DGS bullet in 375, 416, something like that. But if you're going to go shoot deer, you've got so many options, so many options. Right. And it just depends on, your, on the distances that you're going to be shooting at as well. Yeah. I mean, yeah. It gets really technical when you start talking, you know, you start mentioning all the different bullet types with all the designations, all the different calibers. And um, I know just as a general hunter, I shoot a, actually my 308, uh, your HST 165 grain. Uh, and that's what I found to be the straightest, you know, most consistent bullet to come out of my gun. But it is kind of interesting to hear all the different, you know, the latest and greatest models Like you, you mentioned the ELDX and, you know, some of the other um, monikers that you have on your bullet types, you know, as you guys go through that development process, what does that kind of, what does that look like? I mean, obviously 
you, you think, well, a bullet is the same shape, same size for every caliber, but clearly there's more that goes into just, you know, a bullet. There's, there's a lot of science and research. Oh, yeah. Yeah, there's a ton of stuff that goes into it. You know, so Hornady's been in business since 1949, started out making bullets, and every new product we have is building on the past product and the past product and the past product. So, it, we, we, like, our newest bullet that we've created is the uh, A-tip bullets that we're uh, making as a component bullet for mat shooters. So that thing's got 70-plus years' worth of experience that is manifesting in, in that creation. Um, one cool thing I... Not quite answering your question, I suppose, but a cool thing that we do have here is that our engineers, our management, everybody here, you know, kind of really likes this stuff. So a lot of times we're just making things that we think is cool that we would like to use. And then, oh, lo and behold, hey, the public likes it, too. Um, yeah. We shoot competitively. We try to stay engaged in the industry in a variety of different ways. But there are, you can't just do everything. And, you know, like I said, black ops, right, for the 6.5 Creedmoor. Well, back in 2007, that was a little easier than it is right now. We can't make enough of anything. So, um, but yeah, the process is we identify a niche uh, that we would like to fill or somebody just has a great idea and they're allowed to run with it here. Uh, it's a creative group of people that uh, are encouraged to keep doing things independently and uh, to keep innovating and keep striving to make something that's better that people didn't know they needed until they hear about it. Yeah, I was gonna, I was gonna ask, do you guys ever get squirrely out there and just start making some magical concoction, take it out to the range and see how how badass it is, or it maybe blows up and <laughs> proverbially blows up in their face? Well, I mean, there's things that you know we've we've worked on, even some of the things that weren't really a big success have helped us as a, as a, as a leapfrogging project to something that, you know, we learned from that one to make the next thing better. So, you know, if you, we're going to try this again, we're, we'll just, what, a, what amazing things were we talking about? Uh, uh, bullet development. Yeah. And bullet the process that goes into that. Yeah. Oh yeah. Hold on. Yeah. We got three, two, one, and, and little short intermission. Yeah. There you go. go yeah. Sorry about that. So we got we got to pick up where you left off there on uh, on bullet development. We were talking about different iterations, uh, and how uh, a lot of the current bullet development is backed by your you know seventy plus years of of making bullets in the industry. Yeah, and you know it's so one thing it just builds on another, and uh, as advancements come about, we take advantage of them. But you know, you take for example something that was pretty revolutionary at the time. We were working on some new match bullet technology. Well, actually, hunting bullet technology. So our guys wanted to buy a Doppler radar, right? Nobody else really used a Doppler radar except for massive scientific exploits in the ballistic world. Well, Dave Emery was our ballistician at the time. He's now moved on. He's at the New Mexico School of Mines, I believe, flying big missiles into mountainsides and doing a bunch of uh, aerospace technology over there now. A little bit bigger bullet. A little bit bigger. Missiles. <laughs> So, you know, he, he had a lot of experience with this from his old life, um, and uh, we got ourselves a, a Doppler radar. I want to say we, not me. Um, <laughs> Collective we. <laughs> all, all the smart guys down the hall in engineering got one. So they went out and tested. Uh, we're looking at a bunch of bullets and testing things, and they started to see, you know, what they thought were anomalies. Well, if you look at what they discovered, basically they were they were proving that 
certain plastics uh, used in tip materials were melting in flight. So that's what we coined uh, aerodynamic heating. So in order for your ballistic uh, calculators to work correctly, you need to have um, exact inputs. Well, if I tell you that the shape of this bullet is this, and then as it flies, it turns into this, it's no longer giving you the right calculations, if that makes sense to you. Yeah. Yeah. So as that tip is sloughing off due to aerodynamic heating, the G1, G7, the BC that you're using for your calculation is actually changing. So that's why people would have kind of dead spots when they're using a lot of these calculators. They were, you know, they're on at 100 or 200, but then something would happen here and there. And so they'd have to adjust for that and just kind of know those things. Well, um, uh, by, by working through uh, what we did with our ELDXs and ELD match uh, bullets, we then identified a heat resistant polymer and crafted uh, the heat shield tip. So from that, came a lot of advents quite frankly but that was just because the guys wanted to experiment and try something and, and another this is another time when steve didn't say no so so we got a <laughs> yeah so we got a doppler radar and kind of set the world on its head um but at the same time that's one of those discoveries where you go uh oh you know how do we tell everybody that you know these tips do change uh in flight well bottom line is is that standard polymer tips most of those bullets you're only shooting at 400 yards let's just say not that big of a deal, you know, cause it takes time, it takes heat and it takes and or velocity, right? It takes this combination of things for that tip to, to actually change. Well, if you're shooting a VMAX at a prairie dog at two or 300 yards, irrelevant. It's there so fast. It's not a problem, but when you're shooting a big, heavy bullet at a long range, it matters. Yeah. So going along those lines, because that's a, I think that's kind of cool that you guys, you know, got the technology to measure that stuff and then kind of figured out the polymer. Is there a potential market then for like an all plastic or an all polymer type bullet? Like, is that even a possibility? The issue you'd run into there is, uh, it's, it's, it's weight. You wouldn't have the density. Right. So you got to have the weight in the projectile. That's why what we call mono metal or non-traditional bullets that don't have a lead core they're longer for weight because remember what i said you know you got you know it's a seven millimeter bullet well you want to make it way more it has to get longer right so you're kind of constrained with its overall diameter well once you take the density out of the material you're going to make mm -hmm. it out of a copper like for us it's a copper alloy that we use other sure. companies that you may know of that make um, monolithic or non-lead core bullets, they're using a solid all copper. So copper is kind of sticky when it's not in an alloy form. So we, we use uh, a copper alloy. But anyway, you got to make that bullet a lot longer. Now you run into things where standard twist rates become a problem because that twist is what uh, helps stabilize your bullet, right? Well, longer bullets require faster twist rates. Well, you know, Sammy introduced cartridges and subsequent uh, twist rates are out there for established things and established bullet lengths. So that's why you see some of the new cartridges that do get developed over time, because now we're able to uh, set something out there where we can set the standard and it's got a long bullet and the twist rates are this for the gun to stabilize those bullets. So that's why you're seeing things like a 6.5 PRC and the like. Yeah. Now, the follow up to that would be, I know. You guys also have um, a very cool ballistics app. 
Um, was that app developed after your little Doppler piece as far as like, would that be kind of, you know, in, I guess in my mind, I'm thinking like, oh, well, when that came out, was that, you know, generated or, you know, stemmed post, you know, kind of that little experimentation with that stuff? Because I'm assuming that, you know, or updated, I guess, maybe in, in concurrency with that. Yeah, it was. I mean, that they didn't start out that way. It kind of came to be that way. We needed a better way to measure um, drag profiles and things like this. And, and, and so the Doppler helped with that. But then all the ballistic programs that are out there weren't really giving us correct data. So, again, like what I said about, you know, there'd be some dead spots here and there. So when you look at a standard uh BC curve. I'd have to do it with hand signals and have a whiteboard behind me. But long story short, when you're when you're entering a, a ballistic coefficient uh, number for a bullet, you're comparing it to a known bullet shape, right? So a G1, um, I think, is a Krupp uh, uh, projectile from like World War One, maybe or before that, something like that. It was a German field artillery projectile. So it has a flat base and it has kind of a conical tip, right? So that's what G1 is used. That 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 is G1. Everything is based off of that for G1. You know, so if you're 0.5, you're 0.5 of that, right? And then G7 is, is G1 a... Like, a, like generation one? Is that kind of what the G is, the moniker? No, I wish I knew the answer. I, I'd have to look it up for you. I, I don't have that one off the tip of my that's tongue, but it's, it doesn't mean gener... I'm pretty dang sure it doesn't mean generation. It's... It, um, but then there's a G7, which now uh, is modeled after a uh, field artillery projectile from the 50s, which has a boat tail and kind of more of a, a different profile on the tip. So now your bullets that you're measuring against a G7, so that's why you get a 0.7, or 0.2, whatever you're getting. It's a percentage of that, right? So like our 50 cal AMAX, it's BC, it's G1BC. I've got it on the board here somewhere. But it's better than one. So it's it's more aerodynamically efficient than the model that it's being compared to. So oh, wow. long story short, you're, you have this kind of sliding rule. So you're taking your projectile and you're, and you're shoving it into a model that we know. So this G7 projectile, it does this. Well, your bullet does this for most of the time. But somewhere down here, it doesn't quite match up, right? So that's why people would have yeah. to do certain things with their apps in order to kind of true their trajectory and do all these things and basically slide it back or forward or whatever with velocity and all these things to kind of make that marry up. Well, that didn't seem like the right way to do it for our guys. So we set about to, you know, kind of craft something that would be better. So that's when we did the four degree of freedom or Ford off uh, ballistic calculator that's available on our website, but then most recently on an app form on your phone. Yeah. That's, I mean, for a guy like me, like, uh, Scotty, who was sitting in, as I mentioned, like in our email pre-show, you know, he's a competitive shooter, and um, and then you know, Jason is even more uh, you know knowledgeable on this stuff than than I am. I'm the type of guy that like I'm gonna go, hey, dude, what should I shoot? You know, like I, I mean, I, it's I think maybe that's why like as as I've progressed in you know, big game hunting and things like that, I, I'm almost uh, you know I lean towards the bow, even though there's plenty of complexity in the bow nowadays too. But um, I think part of it there's even a little bit of me that's like man i my education level and and looking at some of these things that are now out there in terms of technology with ballistics calculators and stuff are just so much more helpful to the person who is an avid hunter that can go and look at you know a 
stack full of, of you know, whether it's either guns or, or ammo and go, holy crap, where the heck do I start? Yeah, and, it can and, be overwhelming. And, and it, it can be very overwhelming. And to start to understand some of these things. And so those tools, I think, become hugely important. And so for me, like, those are th those have been helpful for me to get a better understanding of, you know, if I, if I grab a bullet, you know, what's it going to mean when I actually chamber that and want to send it down range? And then what am I aiming at? And all these other things and it starts it becomes a piece pieces of the puzzle that start to help you make more educated decisions because in a lot of cases like i look at myself personally you know the first rifle that i owned was like oh hey uh here and dad hands it down to you and you go well that's what i'm shooting right and uh and and then as you evolve it becomes something where now you're going well i want to hunt this or i'm going to compare it to where i started and where i want to go or what i want to hunt yeah. And it becomes just so many more pieces to that puzzle. And well, right. that's kind of how I got into rifle shooting was, you know, the Internet is a great tool, obviously. But it was, you know, what is the – I only wanted to buy one rifle. And I said, I want to buy one rifle that can kill an elk, that can kill a deer, pretty much kill anything that I'm going to hunt in the state of Colorado. And, you know, through my research, I figured out, you know what, a three oh eight can pretty much do it all. And it's a very widely available caliber. It wasn't like, you know, at the time, the 6.5 wasn't a very readily available caliber. And, um, you know, then I look at the cost to shoot. How much is it, you know, how oh, much yeah, is a bullet, for sure. you know, 308 versus, you know, a 7 rem or 7 rem mag. You know, you're talking about a dollar around or, you know, you're getting pretty expensive to shoot where I can just go and pick up a box of 308 for, you know, well, the, the ones I shoot are like 30 Five thirty-six bucks a box, yeah. but I can get plinking ammo for like fifteen or twenty bucks a box, uh, and it makes it a little bit more affordable. So that's all part of the, you know, the research that goes into things. It's just trying to find versatile calibers, but also one that, you know, it's not got to kick like a mule because I don't want to buy a rifle and hate shooting it and just never right. want to go shoot it again. I want that, something that's going to be fun to shoot. Yeah, my 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 thirty out six, which is again, that's my my first one that got handed down to me. I can't stand shooting that thing. Every time I put five rounds through it, and the next thing I know, I'm like, you know, you start getting into you, you know getting the flinches shy, and like, anticipation oh, of shoulder. trigger and all that other stuff, and I'm like, I'm defeating my own purpose. Like I, yeah. I'm screwing myself before I even step in front of anything. And and to me, then it becomes an ethical piece where I'm like, I'm not doing justice to you know the hunt and to the yeah. animal and to everything else to walk in knowing that that's kind of in my own head. And mm -hmm. so you know, I've, I've practically gotten to a point where I'm like. I, I don't know that I want to step in the field with that that firearm too much because I I've kind of went down that process and, right. and so it, it is you know it is what it is it's interesting but um, moving on I got I got a couple things we're gonna move on to a little bit more fun stuff I want to talk to you out of all the hunts that you've done or maybe all the animals you've hunted like what do you can what's what's at the top of your list what are maybe your your you know either most uh, memorable or most enjoyable or things that you're like, man, if I could do that again, I'm, I'm doing that for sure. Yeah. I get asked this one quite a bit and I, I don't know why I don't just kind of craft some standard <laughs> answer. Um, a deer on you know, right I, shoulder I, looks like a good place to start. <laughs> yeah. There's a springbok back here and a, the, the ever elusive whitetail deer. Um, you know, I've, 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 I haven't hunted everything in the world. There's not, you know, there's plenty of things I'd like to do. But I've, I've been very uh, rewarded in my hunting career and then throughout the industry. And I've been able to do a lot of things, quite frankly. And I've done, you know, I my bucket list trip was a was a trip to, quote unquote, Africa in 2009, where 
all I wanted to shoot was a Springbok, which is that guy, um, a zebra, I think, uh, Gemsbuck and a Kudu. And on that trip, I, you know, then I did a heart of beast and a warthog and all this stuff. So, I mean, that was my original bucket list. And I've, I've been fortunate enough to surpass that on numerous occasions. Um, I have uh, hunted dangerous game in Africa. I've hunted leopard. I've hunted uh, Cape Buffalo, um, even, you know, hunted bull elephant, which, you know, for some people it's kind of controversial, but there's, there's a lot to that, which I'd, I'd love right. to spend some time on. Um, and, uh, you know, to be fair, like the, 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 the animal that I covet the most, which is the hardest to, um, in order to kill a, a big one is a, the good old generic American white-tailed deer. I mean, if somebody comes into your house, they might see the second largest, uh, you know, white-tailed gnu, and they go, wow, that's cool. That's from somewhere else. Nice. But they come in your house and they see a big deer. They know exactly what it took to get that thing. And they know how much time you spent to try to shoot one bow rifle, however you do it. Um, but to get a free range or a, you know, fair chase, a big mature white tailed deer, that's tough. It's just not easy. Yeah. Um, any, any opportunities to go after a Neil guy? I've never shot a Neil guy. Um, I, I, I really like to, because people always tell me how tough they are to, to kill and you can't use this cartridge and that cartridge. And, I'd kind of like to see that for myself. Um, yeah, it's kind of like the kind of like the like elk aliens, with the six five so Creedmoor. Yeah, I mean that's like they they're just such. I think they're technically in, in the antelope family, but they're yeah. like the size. But they're like the size of a horse, and I don't know. They they just look out of this world. I think it'd be really cool to. to I've I've, uh, I've eaten Nil guy. It's delicious. So that's what I, yeah, hear. I hear I'd that love that. Well, yeah. Yeah, Axis is delicious. Black Buck's really good. Uh, Nil Guy's good. I haven't shot one, like I said, but I mean, it's, 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 you know, Moose is delicious too. So yeah, it's right up yeah. there. Nice. Yeah. Um, so, but yeah, Texas has got a lot going on and it's fascinating. You know, the one thing I, you know, I'm kind of off the, off the cuff here, but you know, the continent of India or the subcontinent of India is just kind of a strange place with all these animals that come from there because, Part of the animals are European, so deer and things like this. And then part of them, part of their uh, uh, huntable species that are now around the world are uh, antelope. You know, so part of it is Africa and part of it is Europe. It's just interesting because you can kind of see how that must have separated from the horn of Africa at one point in time. And it's just got this diverse group. I mean, bears, it's got leopards, it's got elephant. It's just got this amazingly diverse uh, group of animals that, you know, a lot of them now are in Texas. So we get to hunt yeah. yeah that's interesting so uh, speaking of something that is very unique to hunt and i know that you did this recently with with fred eichler and i remember messaging you about it was yeah at being from nebraska like like you and i both are that you never really get the opportunity to in fact i i didn't even realize growing up until probably you know years after college you, you could even hunt them because they're kind of coveted in nebraska as the uh you know the mating grounds and all that are right in in our backyard there is the sandhill crane and i know you went yeah. out and hunted them with fred um in colorado we don't want to ask where um but uh talking about that like that you can text that, us later yeah that that to me is like <laughs> that's not, that's something that i want to do and it's not that far unreachable but right. uh like how is that compared to you know you do a lot of goose hunting and stuff like that like um talk about that experience because i thought that was awesome yeah i mean i echo exactly what you said you know, when you go get your 
for us in Nebraska, a lot of people don't know, but Kearney, Nebraska is the epicenter of the crane migration. So every spring they stop along the Platte River from, you know, somewhere around probably Grand Island to Lexington, maybe. And I think almost every Sandhill crane in North America, if I'm not mistaken, stops here. And uh, I don't know if they're, I don't know if they're not mating, but maybe they're courting, I think, and just kind of getting ready to go. And then from here, then they, then they fly north. Um, so for us, there's no hunting season and, uh, they, they, they really only show up in the spring. So in the fall, they'll fly over us and you can sometimes hear them like on the opening weekend of uh, pheasant season or something like that. You'll hear them kind of purring as they, or, you know, whatever their noise is, pterodactyl sounds as they fly over you. Um, but they don't really stop. So there isn't really much of a huntable population in the fall. So yes, uh, they are, uh, it's like getting a bald Eagle permit. I don't know how else to put it. So yeah. Yeah. You get to, you get a Sandhill crane, uh, permit and in Colorado, I think you can shoot three a day or something like this. So we did, we went out and, uh, hunted cranes and the, the game warden actually hunted with us. So that added uh, legitimacy to it. I, I didn't feel go. like we were doing the wrong thing. And, so, uh, so, so the, the moniker for the Sandhill is the ribeye of the sky. Is it yeah. the ribeye of the sky? Is yeah, it really it's, taste that yeah good? it's delicious. I, you know, I kept one that I, I'm going to get mounted because it, again, it's just such a prize here because we don't have right. them, but, um, we ate a couple of them and, uh, you know, I just put them in a, in a crock pot with a, just some mixture of whatever I could throw in there. And boy, that thing tasted like, uh, uh, a roast, just like a beef roast. It was delicious. Wow. Wow, that's, that's pretty cool. Uh, yeah. Yeah. Right. So, um, Last, I think the last thing here, and then we'll uh, we'll uh, probably get get to a wrap up here. Is talk a little bit. I know you guys, and you mentioned it a little bit earlier, is your involvement, especially with you know the competitions, the uh, the shooting uh, circuits, and some things like that. Um, you know, obviously you guys sponsor quite a bit of of uh, you know shooters and things. Um, maybe just touch on that because I know you're you're at a lot of them. You go out and and you know you're part of them. I'm sure that there's a ton of of marketing opportunities there. And what what outside of just it being something fun to go do um you know how how does that uh outside of the marketing and things become something that's super valuable to you guys are you guys utilizing those guys things as far as like decisions and and how how you know rounds are handling and stuff like that because obviously you're talking about very skilled people that are you know extremely good and i'm sure that their their level of of you know ability to feel out how you know around is handling and things like that is much higher than you know some idiot like me yeah and me quite honestly so i mean the people that we work with are you know they're 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 junkies a lot of them you know like uh i've seen trap shooting junkies just like you know people see golf junkies they're just people that, that that's what they do you know so there's precision rifle shooting or prs junkies there's uh, uh cmp junkies there's three gun junkies i mean that's just what they do it identi- it's it's how they identify um so yeah these folks they will when we do prototype stuff um we'll send them out to our folks to have them do some field evaluations And there could be certain environmental circumstances where one projectile works better than another or a different chamber design that one guy has like a six dasher versus a GT versus a Creedmoor or something like this that they see, you know, there could be some nuances that we need to address, things like that. Uh, And then sometimes it's simple as just verification. Um, You know, they're taking it out. Yes, this is doing exactly what you said it would do. And, you know, when we just test stuff in a, in a, you know, kind of our, uh, 
lab environment. Now, again, we have people that shoot here and we take them out and we shoot them ourselves, but, um, you know, some, it's good to have other people give you input on, on how these things work. Uh, you know, maybe changing a profile of a bullet a little bit helps it uh, in certain chambers versus others. So some of that stuff matters. Uh, and then again, sometimes it's just simply verification that, yeah, this, this is the way to roll. Um, and then on, on the hunting side, it's the same thing. I mean, we can test a bullet here in our lab, shoot it into jello, shoot it into, you know, various mediums. But until you take it out in the field and actually see how it performs against bone, um, hide, flesh, all that stuff, you know, then you, uh, uh, then you can make a, a, a honest assessment about it. Yeah. You guys don't have like a small herd of animals that runs around the Hornady campus that you can <laughs> harvest for. Yeah. Just go out back and go grocery shopping. <laughs> yeah, exactly. yeah. Uh, that's funny. Uh, you know, it's interesting because my, the last thing is, is maybe just a, more of a sidebar is I think I kind of made a, a little bit of a reconnection with what you were doing based on someone who I know lives kind of in your area, um, who's Les Johnson, uh, you know, Predator Quest. And I can recall uh, watching you know, Outdoor Channel or wherever, you know, his his show is on. And all of a sudden, we'll flip it on and all of a sudden, look who's hunting with Les. And, and it was you. And uh, and I've heard him, you know, bring your name up numerous times. So uh, is, is his show still on? Just I think it is. Yeah, it's still on. I think it's on Pursuit Channel now. Yeah, yeah, he took a, he, he didn't do it for a year, I think, maybe just a year, and then he brought it back. Les just has to have a show. That's just all there is to it. Les, yeah. Les has to keep having a show until he's in a walker. <laughs> he's, I tell you what, he's he's good at what he does. That's, that, that's got to be pretty, pretty fun to, to go out with. Yeah, him, he's so. he. it's interesting. And, you know, that's another cool thing about my job is that I do get to meet people who are experts in certain fields. I mean, I've met guys who are – just amazing turkey callers and turkey hunters. I've met guys who can, uh, you know, speak elk like nobody can speak elk. I, uh, guys that can hunt coyotes, guys that can hunt foxes, all this stuff. And so, like, for Les, his specialty is that western uh, coyote hunting, big open areas. Uh, and then there's other guys like um, Jeff Thomason in Texas. His specialty is night hunting with lights and calls and thermals and things like that. So, it's very rewarding to be able to meet these folks uh, that are just experts in their niche. You know, they might be good at a lot of things, but they have a niche that they're just really good at. And when you hunt with them, you just learn so much. I, I've been I've been pretty blessed to be able to 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 participate that guys in Africa. I mean, you know, uh, folks in New Zealand, all over the place. It's pretty it's pretty rewarding to see these people. Yeah, I think that for us, the big thing that we found in you know our infancy of of kind of growing into the outdoor space a little bit is just the fact that the inviting nature, you know, I think that you've probably seen that uh, probably as well as the amount of people that we reach out to and say, Hey man, we, we just love to get in contact or learn more about what you do and that kind of stuff. And, and everybody has, has such a, a, you know, a likeness to being part of, of, you know, maintaining number one that we still will have the ability to get out and you know utilize public lands and own firearms and all these other things which could be an entirely different podcast in itself but um i, I think that that's been probably the most rewarding to us is being able to connect with folks and realize that you know what there there isn't this like closed nature you know guys are 
they love to share. They're willing to, you know, teach. They're willing to, you know, give you experiences and things like that. And, and you know, it's amazing how many things I think about that I've learned by going hunting with other folks and, and being able to, you know, pick up things from them. I mean, listening to some of the stuff that you shared today, and I'm like, I'm going to have to go back and watch to, you know, kind of write down and, and take my own notes on some of this stuff, which is, you know, uh, ulterior motives in my own personal selfishness, being able to say, like, I want to pick his brain a little bit. <laughs> Yeah, there's lots. And, you know, the other thing is, uh, you know, I've got kids, I've introduced all my kids to hunting and they're, it's, it's rewarding, quite frankly. So, you know, when they can go out there and do it themselves, uh, as a parent, when you see your kid able to go basically become a, a, a expert goose caller expert, you know, they can set up decoys, they can uh, set up tree stands and archery hunt deer and have success doing all that stuff. That's extremely rewarding. Um, but yeah, we all need to try to grab, uh, you know, help some other people out. Maybe there's some kids out there that are uh, single parents or have parents that don't hunt or anything like that. And, you know, we kind of get fixated on having to take a kid out to go shoot a deer or something like that. There's nothing wrong with taking them out to go shoot some rabbits or, you know, take them on a duck hunt or something that's very social and easy to deal with. So, you know, that's something we should all try to do, I suppose, if we can. Yeah. Yeah, I mean, that's how I got into it. I mean, I, I grew up in California my parents hated guns. And they're animal lovers. So somehow I managed Here to we morph are. into an archery hunter. I bought a rifle, you know, uh, I shoot waterfowl. Uh, we'd like, you know, you were just saying take kids out on a duck hunt. Like, you know, I, I took my son out a couple of weeks ago uh, with Joel and, and one of our, um, one of our uh, students here. And we had a blast. And it was awesome because he didn't have to sit still. He didn't have to be quiet. Yeah, um, he got to, you know, he got to see and experience, you know, the, the, you know, the reason why we like to be out there, why we do those things. And he had a flipping blast and absolutely, he still talks about it. <laughs> um, you know, and at the end of the day, he's like, you know, you know, whenever I get up early, he thinks I'm going duck hunting. He wants to come with me. So that, you know, that makes, you know, gives me that proud papa moment and makes That's me hope awesome. that the future is going to be bright for him in the outdoors, much brighter than it was for me at his age. Yeah, he's gonna um, be a way better fishing, hunter than you. But uh, yeah, he's, <laughs> he's already a better shot than me. I'll tell you that much. So. Um, but you know, and I learned archery hunting from you know Joel because he kept Terrible talking idea. about how awesome it was to be in the woods. He's like, "Oh yeah, Darb had this deer here, or he had this buck, and uh, you know, I was gonna shoot this bull at twenty yards." This and I'm like, "Well, damn it! Now I gotta go buy a bow. I only have a rifle." Yeah. So. Yeah, it didn't take long. That's how it is, you know. And I I mean, to be fair, archery hunting is extremely rewarding. You just got to be willing to. Well, I had that. I had sit for a long time without shooting one, though. But yeah, yeah, yeah. we've done a pretty good job of taking our bows for walks around the the woods the last couple of years. Yeah, we. Yeah, every time I go archery hunting, it's like I'm I'm an armed uh, deer watcher or nature watcher. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. We we start bringing cameras that way. Yeah, it's just we can start recording our antics because I'm sure like. My my uh, my wife always like, what were you doing? And I'm like, ah, oh, just we'll we'll start taking yeah. pictures and filming that way. You, you can at least get an idea. You don't really want to know what yeah. we were doing. Come home empty handed. She's like, I'm gonna start going hunting. Yeah. Uh, Pam's this. already told me. She's like, I'm going hunting next year because you suck. <laughs> so, yeah. Good luck. Yeah, but anyhow, well, um, first of all, Neil, thanks so much, man. It's it's good to to catch up a little bit, and uh, you know, it's been obviously tons and tons of years, but um, you know, we appreciate your time, and uh, I definitely will follow up again, and uh, love to see what you guys continue to do, and and you know, obviously for us in terms of. Uh, 
what we like to support and things it's you know it's the people it's the brands it's the companies that you know we believe in and want to use and um so it was it was pretty easy you know i kind of kept pinging you and pinging you like i, I gotta find a way to you know reconnect because not only uh poke, 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 yeah poke. have we not talked in a long time and and uh, whatnot but at the same time uh it, the circles it's funny how they kind of always come come back around so uh, it's it's cool to catch up with you and, and like i said I, I feel like I live a little bit vicariously because I'm like, oh, what's what's he doing now? And you know, look, hey, just like, remember, we all live our best life on social media, Joel. So. That's true. That's this yeah. is true. I know. I need to start doing that. You know, yeah. you start living, <laughs> start living a better life through social media. <laughs> so. But anyhow, well, uh, who knows? Maybe we'll run into you again, and uh, and I'll definitely be sure to follow up. And hopefully, you have a good weekend, and we'll look forward to seeing what's next with you. Yeah, thanks. For well, thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Appreciate yeah, it. We appreciate it. Thanks. Thanks again for joining us on today's Hunt, Hike, Harvest podcast. We appreciate you tuning in, and we look forward to having you visit us again in future episodes. In the meantime, follow us on all of our social media outlets on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter, as well as subscribe and like our YouTube page at Hunt, Hike, Harvest Outdoors, or H3 Outdoors. Have an interesting topic, someone you'd like to see on our podcast, or a current trend that you see in the field that you'd like to see us cover? Email us at hunthikeharvest at gmail.com, and maybe your questions will be answered in a future episode. Until next time, thanks again for joining us. We wish you all the best in your outdoor adventures, and we look forward to seeing you again soon. Happy hunting.